Hello, and welcome to the Antique Auction Forum podcast. And uh, my guest today is Stephen Schofield. I've known Stephen, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to ask him how many years it's been. But uh, without further ado, we're going to be talking about coins, and I want to bring them, coins and stamps, that is, I'm going to bring them in right now. Hey, welcome Martin, show, how are you? Thank Good. You. How long have we known each other? I mean, summer of 1981 was when I went to auction school and I came back and a day later I was working with you and your dad at the Seaboard Auction Gallery down in Elliott as a runner wow. and and uh, helping out selling. And I apprenticed wow. with your dad for six months and got my auctioneer's license. Boy, we had a lot of fun, didn't we? It, it was, was great fun. Of course, yeah. I wouldn't want to move the stuff around. We were moving then. My back oh, might not last. I was just telling a friend uh, two days ago because I hurt my back actually because I had to buy something at an auction. It went for such a good deal. Uh-huh. So I had to buy it. It was uh, it was just an incredible deal. Otherwise, I- I'd just walk away today. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I was telling when I was 17, I moved a P- – I wanted to prove to my father. I don't know why, but, hmm. you know, I, I wanted to prove to him that I could move this piano by myself. So him <laughs> – and, and Jenny went for uh, lunch. And yep. so I moved the piano. It was a play, not a play. I mean, not upright piano. I got it all the way to the porch and the trailer was on an angle without me thinking about it. So, <laughs> so I get the uh, piano and I made it and like, hooray. And all of a sudden it goes, boom, boom, right into the front of the trailer. And nice. My father was very happy. nice. Yeah. Yeah. Damage control. But yep. anyway, uh, you have, uh, and I've actually helped you. I remember helping you at an auction years ago up in your area where you're living up in New Hampshire, and you had a ton of Staffordshire figurines. Do you remember that auction? I certainly do. That was a wonderful <laughs> on-site sale. It and, was, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Just yeah. like I helped you out when you did the Zaya Bartlett auction. I remember that. Yes, you were, yeah. you were a great help there. Great help. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, great memories uh, yeah, and it's years. always fun to work with a consummate professional. Oh, and well, you and your dad are always work. Same here. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I want to talk to you about you kind of branched off into um, coins and stamps and uh, have become very well known for it. Um, I, I did have myself, I did have a, a passion for collecting when I was very young. Unfortunately, um, I, my father and a whole, whole family went to Florida and a so-called friend broke into my house and stole all my coins and then spent oh. them at the Bolarama in Portsmouth, New Hampshire as coin uh, face value. And I will tell you this, in that I saved for a whole year doing paper route, lawns and everything to buy an uncirculated VDBS. And uh, oh it, was, it was spent as a penny. Well, and, it's worth uh, more than $1,000 now. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I make sure I good. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so that kind of dampered that really tamped down my interest in coins. I just I didn't even want to look at coins anymore because. But how did you get into this whole aspect of of coins well, and stamps? Kind of interesting. When I was seven, I was now old enough to get my nose above the cash register drawer in my parents and grandparents store. And so Saturdays, my brother, older brother was in the boy Scouts. So he was off hiking or camping or whatever he, he did. And uh, my mom worked Saturdays and it was time for daycare. And so that was me. I became the cashier. So oh, wow. at the time, at the time, this is the uh, mid fifties. I'll date myself. I'll, I'll say it was 1955. Everybody on this cast can figure out my age. And I was making 10 cents a week allowance. Well, with 10 cents a week, you could buy two packs of baseball cards. And all of a sudden I needed, I needed five cents. So I have five pennies for my uh, penny collection. And all of a sudden only five cents for one pack of baseball cards. So I got really good at flipping baseball cards with my friends so I could win and get more cards. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and that literally that's how I started. And stamps were because of of the envelopes that my my folks were throwing out from the business. And I said, gee, I could just rip the corner of an envelope off with a stamp on it. In those days, of course, every stamp you licked wasn't the peel and stick like you have today. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and it was a pretty simple process. You put the the corner in a cereal bowl of water, the glue would dissolve, you'd dry the stamp and you could put it in your stamp album. And that it's yeah. it's that from those simple beginnings it's become uh, became a passion as a collector and and it, now I earn my living doing it. 
and and you do very well at it and and but let me ask you this what yes. is it to what is do you think it's technology or the information age that just makes someone like you not come along so often today you know i'm talking about young people's interest in in collecting this type of thing well with young people with any collecting any kind of product or whatever it might be it's just there's not a lot of interest I mean, I grew up in a time when we didn't have a television in the house. My my folks would sit my brother and I down in front of the big box radio to listen to serials and wow. they would say, don't beat each other up. And so <laughs> it, it was it was a time where you had time. Uh, you talk about uh, stamps. Well, the collectors of stamps were the greatest generation in early baby boomers because they had the time to do these things. It, it was it was quiet. You could not bother people like your mom and dad and your grandparents if you had multi-generations at home. And, and you could learn about history and you could learn about geography. And it was really great. Uh, with coins, you could just learn about what was going on with different eras. I mean, a, a simple example is why did they make in, in a given year so few coins? Well, it gets tied mm. back to the economic situation. If we were in a recession or a depression, the the economy didn't need a lot of circulating coins, so the government would stop making a lot, or they wouldn't even make a particular denomination in a given year. So all of that kinds of plays into being fascinated with history and, and the way we work as a, as a country. I have a, a question for you. It just came to mind when you're, when you're saying this. Um, I had uh, a neighbor once um, when I was growing up, and she said that she believed she had one of the rarest coins that there was. And so I remember asking her what it was. And she said it was a copper 1944 penny. I think she said 1944 when there were zinc. Is that well, even possible? It, yes, actually, it was 1943. During 1943. World War II, uh in the middle of the war in 1943, copper was such an important strategic war metal that they made zinc-coated steel pennies just for that particular year. But when they changed over from 1942 to 1943, there were still some old copper blanks left in the hoppers. And they got fed through and got coined. There are, I believe, about 14 or 15 of, of the 1943 copper pennies, just like in 1944, when they went back to the copper pennies, there were still some zinc and steel blanks left in the hoppers. And so there are actually some 1944 steel pennies. And I should make a little bit of a comment here. In 1944 and 45, most of the pennies were actually made out of used shell casings huh. from uh, uh, you know, military training. As guys were going through basic, you had all of these spent rounds. and I they thought got that recycled. was brass, though. There wasn't brass? Uh, well, it sort of. It was just the alloy that was used, and there was a mixture. They weren't, they weren't pure copper. It was just an interesting dynamic from the so, war years. And, so and if she I'll indeed also, had that coin, would it have been an extremely valuable coin? Massively. I mean, really? you're talking yeah. – in, in today's market, you're talking about a quarter of a million dollars or more. <laughs> For one of them. I'm going to have to talk to my friend. He's still in the same house. He never moved. Yeah, but the, the trick is a lot of people would take a 1943 steel penny and they would copper coat it through a plating process, which when if you had a chemistry shed as a kid, you could do that. And so yeah. it was always fun. But the since steel pennies would be attracted to a magnet, that's the first tell. Yeah. Yeah. OK, I'll bring my magnet. When I go yes, visit bring, bring, bring a magnet and, and then you can. <laughs> yeah. But if but if the coin is not attracted to the magnet and says 1943, uh, you want to have a new best friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We've lost touch a little bit. So, okay. yeah. uh, well, interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as far as uh, you making the the switch over. I never really saw that. You, you know, you. I was out in California for a while, but yes. when did you actually switch over to uh, just opening up Centennial Coin? And by the way, I'm going to pull up the website so people can see it. 
Okay, well, Centennial, which is a subsidiary of our main or parent corporation, uh, started in the mid-90s. And we had a, a partner at the time. Uh, right now, it's just my wife and I that, that own the company. We bought out our partner years ago. Uh, but it was started specifically to brand itself for coins and eventually stamps. Uh, the parent company did personal property auctions and, and some real estate and so that's kind of what happened. We just wanted to, to have a separate, a separate branch. And of course, bringing a partner in, we didn't want that individual tied to the, the on-site and estate auctions and, and the furniture and those things. Now, I see you brought up the website and you brought up an interesting uh, image. That coin is an 1895 Morgan silver dollar. In, in that year, they only made 880 of them, and they only made them in a particular condition called proof. A proof coin is something that's specially made by the mint. The blanks are prepared specially, and then when the coin is actually stamped, the coin is undergoes a, a significantly more uh, pressure on it. So you've got great details on the face and the head and all the letters mm. and on the, on the back or the reverse on the Eagle and everything else that, you know, the design is very, very uh, vibrant. In addition, those coins are never shooed into a hopper and put into a bag of a thousand. That's how, how they would uh, uh, process silver dollars, just make a thousand. There'd be a counting machine. It put into a canvas bag bag. They'd, uh, sew it closed and some guy would throw it into a horse court drawn cart in 1895. But because we were in a depression in 1895, it's a small mintage. It's a, a coin that's known as basically the king of silver dollars. And wow. we actually found one as part of an entire proof set being a penny, nickel, dime, quarter, half dollar, and this particular silver dollar. The reason that you have that interesting toning different on the eagle on the back of the coin yep. is because there was a quarter that was sitting on top of that when I <laughs> unpacked that from the literally the original mint envelope. Oh the, 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 this came out of a, an estate. Uh, the, the grandpa had collected this. Actually, he'd gone to the mint in 1895 and bought it. He died in 1955. His daughter, who I'll just say was mom, passed in uh, 2010, and she was 100. And this was in a shoebox underneath her bed at assisted living. And, wow. and the living children called me in to do an appraisal. And it was just, it was fascinating because this was still in the original sealed mint envelope because grandpa and mom told the kids, don't open this. It's valuable and we don't want to mess it up. And, and it's almost impossible. We called that auction the time capsule collection because we had about 25 early proof sets between the early 1880s and 1915. Wow. What did that particular one sell for do you remember that that particular set sold for about two hundred and sixty five thousand dollars oh my goodness isn't that something wow it and, was uh, fun I, yeah oh that's so exciting and i i want to tell first of first of all a couple things because there's a lot of people that really um you know may consider collecting coins or you know think about it or had collected coins it's really, really rare to find something rare. I want to, I want to get that point across. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't look. Um, what do you, what do you say to that comment? I'd say you're, you're a hundred percent correct. The, the rare coins that we run into today, in estates or in houses, are things that just got stuck in a drawer years ago, or for some reason got pulled out of circle circulation and put in somebody's pocket and got saved. And at the time, it was just worth face value. And over the years, all of a sudden, things become very valuable. I remember being in a house in Newburyport, Massachusetts. And, and I'm sure you remember when you were collecting, there were these Whitman folders. And at the time, they probably cost you 19 cents. Oh, yes. And yeah, you, yeah. And you would push the coin into the slot. The blue things. They're blue. The blue, the blue yeah. things. The blue yeah. folding things. I'm not yeah. going to get up and grab one right now. But but, uh, but there's plenty <laughs> around. 
There, yes, there are. Uh, and and uh, you never know what you're going to find in one of those, I'll say, blue foldy things. But we made a particular kind of half a dollar in the United States from uh, 1916 to 1947 called a walking liberty uh, half dollar. And in 1921, the coins from Philadelphia, Denver, and San Francisco were pretty, pretty rare, especially in, in higher grades, because all the coins from, let's say, the early 20s and earlier, once you got into the Depression in the mid to late 20s, people didn't save that stuff. They needed to spend it because they needed to live. They needed to eat. So coins that are closer to new would become much more valuable. And I remember opening up that that Liberty Half Dollar album, uh, sitting in this lady's kitchen and opening up and, and looking at it and saying, oh, it's all stuff. And at the time, all the coins more or less are worth about $1.50 because of the wear. And then I closed it and I'm thinking, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. And I reopened it up and there was the 1921S in a very high grade condition that we sold for $3,000. Wow. But I could see somebody else possibly coming in and not being willing to disclose that and not getting excited about that, saying, oh, it's just worth a buck fifty and and make a lot of money. So it's very important if you have somebody coming in to look at your coins or you bring your coins to somebody that you know who you're dealing with. You just yeah, want to that, be you know, you're reputable and they're ethical. You're, you're right. Trust is a Trust is a very important thing when it comes to, you know, especially when it comes to something like coins, stamps and jewelry. Those are the things where you really have to trust someone if you're out there and you have something just to give an example. Now, I know most people listening to this as an audio podcast. Um, I will share some of the, the pictures. This is just to give you an example of the Walking Liberty uh, 50 cent um, piece, half dollar. Right Correct. That yeah. that's actually a, a proof one. So it, it looks pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and and I can give you another example of a rare coin. Uh, we were in, in Providence this past year and we were looking in in somebody's collection that they had in a series of drawers. And all of a sudden there was a, uh, a five dollar gold piece. And I'm going, well, that's kind of interesting because it was from 1829. And I looked at it, I'm going, this is a pretty rare coin. And it turns out that this coin was handed down through the family by who I'll call the patriarch, because I, I can't go any, I don't know how to go further back. This was a gentleman that was appointed to the Senate out of Ohio. He was a Supreme Court justice back then. And, and when William Henry Harrison was elected president, this guy was appointed to fill his shoes in the U.S. Senate. Well, from the story law there, you just found it. Um, yeah. The long and the short of it was we sold that uh this summer for about $40,000 and it was sitting, sitting in a drawer for years and years and years. And the family really didn't have any idea. They thought it was worth about 15 if they were lucky. Well, and, let's go the other way. The, yes. the more let's go the more than often way. Um, and, uh, and I've actually sent you on a couple of uh, at least one goose, wild goose chase. Yes. Where uh, yes. there's <laughs> massive amounts of stamps. I remember this place in Maine. I, I got oh, a hold of you. There yes. were buildings the full of stamps. <laughs> walls and walls of it. And yes. and worth hardly anything. Worth That's face correct. value, you know? That's well, we, we have a term for that in the stamp end of the operation, and we call it wallpaper. It's just like, <laughs> like what is the highest and best use of, of, a, uh, of a picture? Or, or, gee, you need to cover up a, an old stove hole on your living room wall, and, and you say, well, I think this picture will fit there, and that's a good thing. Well, it's the same thing with stamps. Uh, the stamps may be – it may be – uh, less expensive for you to stick all your stamps on the wall than to actually repaint it. Uh, <laughs> st if, if stamps if stamps are stored improperly, stamps are made out of paper, and so if they get damp or mildewed, there is no recovery. You That's can have right. a really valuable stamp, but if it stinks, it's not any good. And yep. I and I also caution people again. This has to. This is no reflection on anybody, but for years and years, people did an awful lot of smoking. And if, if they were heavy smoker and they were also a stamp collector, you can go into that person's house. You can open up a stamp album, and and 
if that person wasn't a smoker, that stamp album could be worth $10,000. As a smoker, it might be worth $200 because nobody wants the stuff. They don't now, want can it be things. Can it be put in like an ozone uh, odor? Oh, I, 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 I'm sure it can be, but if, <laughs> if I'm going in to appraise the material, I'm not I'm not looking to do any extraordinary things sure. to try to restore something. It's yeah. just, uh, or people will take, you know, grandpa collected stamps and, and they take the box of stamps and they put them in the basement and the basement is damp and, sure. and there are problems. Or there's, a a flood. Lot of that. there's a flood. Well, paper and, and water don't do very well together. Yeah. So how many would you say if, I'm sure it, it, it's like uh, in the antique business, you know, you say you, you get the sewing machine call. And Correct. so many people, because there were so many darn sewing machines, uh, treadle sewing machines made, uh, uh, the household usually had two. They lasted forever. They're still there. So yes. people will call you, I have this wonderful sewing machine. You have to tell them yeah. it's worth $25. That, that's How correct. many of the sewing machine stamp-related calls do you get a year? Uh, out of probably 99 out of 100 are those kinds of things. Because people... Generally, if they were collecting stamps, probably started as a kid like I did, didn't have a whole lot of money. So yeah. they were saving used stamps that had been canceled to sell mail or packages. And, and that means they're going to be less valuable. Think of the, the concept that the further back you go in time, the, the less population there was and, and commerce was significantly less. In the United States, it wasn't until 1892 that we made a stamp that had a face value of over 90 cents. And that was for the Columbian Exposition. And they made commemorative stamps. And the high values were one, two, three, four, and five dollar stamps. Well, think about what you would be doing as a, just a, you know, a grunt worker in 1892 and how long it would take you to make five dollars to buy a stamp and then what would you have to send that would be worth five bucks when it only cost a penny or two to send a postcard or a letter and so so the the more valuable stamps any from any country in the world are going to be number one your higher values number two the stamps that were never used number three stamps that have original gum on the back and have never had a hinge uh, placed on it to get stuck into an album and so there's there's a lot of issues is the centering good what are the perforations look like because remember stamps in those days were made in sheets of 50 or 100 and you had to rip them apart but stamps for example the first stamp in the united states was wasn't made until 1847 and we make, started making coins in 1793 yeah. so before 1847 in the states you'd go to the post office and you'd say you want to send a stamp to seamless cover to yeah. florida florida yeah. and the postmaster would say it was going to cost you three cents you'd give the guy three cents and he would write a three on it and stamp it and it would go off as you say yes yeah. stampless covers yeah yeah let me uh let me ask you this that though uh is this one of the no that's a five cent stamp so that's not well, no that that actually is is a sample of a number one stamp the scott stamp company in the late 1800s came up with a categorizing system and a cataloging system the first stamp issued by any country anywhere in the world is the number one stamp from that country and this would be a u.s number one with ben franklin and then the number two stamp that would have x on it for the roman numeral 10 a 10 cent stamp has George Washington on it. Oh, okay. Let's talk about this yeah. huh. uh, because um, I remember when this, uh, I don't know if it's this exact stamp, but when, boy, did that ever make waves. And let's talk about this stamp again. Now, uh, if you're listening just to the audio, uh, this is the upside down biplane 24 cent stamp. Yes. The, 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 uh, cataloging number for this is a C3. C is the category that anywhere in the world an airmail stamp would have the prefix a big capital letter C. And this 24 cent stamp was the third stamp issued by the United States as an airmail stamp. There was one sheet that at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing that inadvertently went through upside down. If you'll notice, there's red printing and there's blue printing. Yeah. So that was not done at the same time like we could do today. Every time you added a color, 
in, in the 20s to a stamp process, you had to run it through the press a second or a third or a fourth time. Hmm. So, so it, ran, it ran through with the red first, and then the sheet got turned upside down, and the biplane got printed upside down, and uh, somebody in Philadelphia bought that sheet who happened to be a stamp dealer and recognize what the problem was. And what he did was in the upper left-hand corner, remember this was a sheet of a hundred stamps. He in pencil wrote on each stamp, the number from left to right. So in the, in the, in the top block of 10 stamps, again, being left to right, he started with number one, the far right stamp would have been number 10. And if you went all the way to the very bottom on the far right, that would be number 100. And he, he, he cut that, or he, he, he separated that out into individual stamps and into blocks or plate blocks that have the number in the corner on it. And he sold them. And we had the incredible, incredible luck to find one of these in an album under a bed in Concord, New Hampshire in 1995. And it actually was one of the lost lost stamps. That were, at that time, there were six stamps that were unknown out of the original 100. And this was position number 73. So it had so the it, number on it. Yeah, it had, it had 73 on it. And it was documented that number 73 had been missing since the early 1930s. Well, what <laughs> happened was the guy that bought it, uh, it was in his estate, and he bought it in 1928 from an auction company that went belly up during the depression and he just kept it. And there was, so there was no record as to who bought it and where it went. He never displayed it. He never showed it. He just kept it in his album. Wow. And so you just never know. Now it was a situation where we specifically didn't sell it. We actually placed it with a major international uh, auction company uh, because at the time, you know, we're going back 25 years ago, I didn't feel that we had the market in New Hampshire then that we would have now to be able to sell it. Yeah. And I needed to do my due diligence and, and recommend uh, what was in the best interest of my clients. It actually sold then for $88,000. It's worth closer to 200000 today. Wow. Uh, amazing. And and I, I do want to commend you for that. Um, sometimes it's hard to uh, when it comes to ego to do that decision that you did. But I'm telling you, um, uh, I've done it a few times and I've never regretted it because you're, you're working for the client. Um, yeah. And this is why people can trust you because you are there to get them the best money. What we're hired to do when we go in a situation like that, we're not hired to go in there and say, Hey, I'll give you 50 bucks for this. We're hired in there to go on a commission or fee basis to try to do the best for the client. And, uh, and that's, that's a, a great story. I, I thought there was one, wasn't there one that sold for a huge amount of money? Am I thinking of a different stamp or was it, that, or was it 200,000? Was that the number? I, it probably was. Well, I think one of the most recent sales of a Jenny was in the quarter of a million dollar range. Okay. All right. Now I want to talk to you about, um, a misconception. And uh, that is this, I'm pulling this up and it's a Roman coin, but what makes this an exceptional coin is that it's a Roman gold coin. That's correct. Um, the, what the misconception I'm, I'm, I'm getting at or, or, or talking about is uh, the fact that um, these coins, uh, when someone will, will uh, I've gotten the phone call, I'm sure you've gotten the phone call many times where someone says, I have a Roman coin, you know, it's 2000 years old, or it's 1500 years old. And they're all excited and jumping up and down. And then you find out it's worth $40. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah, well, what, what you need to recognize that even though, you know, the Greeks and the Romans were so long ago relative to us, uh, they were pretty successful as societies and their economic system was pretty successful and they made an awful lot of coins. And I don't think they had banks like we had them back then. So, so people would, would store their coins, they put them in a, in a jug or, or some kind of a pottery jar and they might bury them in the backyard. So, so lots of, 
coins have been dug up over the years and things that are dug up, especially if they're not gold, if they're uh, bronze coins, they don't react well to dirt and water. And so it's pretty easy to determine what's a ground recovery. This particular coin is interesting because uh, if you if you notice from the chin down to the edge at about 530 uh, on, on the edge of that coin, you will see that there's kind of a chunk that's missing. And, and there are there are two ways that that chunk could be missing. One is because there was a problem in the blank and the, the blank wasn't uh, made well. And so when the coin was pressed, that piece of metal popped out or somebody wanted to determine what the exact alloy was. So they scraped some of the gold out and, and tested it. And of course, that diminishes the value when that happens. Now, what is a, a gold coin like this? Because it was gold, this is what made this a, a valuable coin. But at what type of value in this particular one? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, around fifteen hundred dollars. I mean, not yeah. astronomical. There, there are ancient gold coins that have sold for over a million bucks, but there are only one or two known. They have an unusual design on them. Maybe it's an emperor. Maybe it's it's just a, a vignette. Whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, but when you get into the populations of a particular coin where, uh, let's say, there are five or less, some are going to be, you know, impounded in a museum, might be in the British Museum, might be in, in Athens in their museum. I see. Now, let me ask you this. I do remember going back to this coin. I do remember as a kid, um, I don't know if it was my father or my grandfather. Someone told me that people used to bite gold coins to make sure they were gold. Is that is that uh, something you've heard of? Oh, gosh, I've seen people do it. Uh, they, they, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, because it, it's it's pretty easy to make a counterfeit gold coin out of lead. And, yeah, because it's heavy. Mm-hmm. It, it, it has a heavy specific gravity, and then yeah. you can, can make it look like gold. And so if, if you try uh, biting a, a coin that's made out of lead, you're going to make a pretty big impression pretty quickly. Now, I don't recommend you do that very awfully, and I certainly don't recommend you eat lead, but it's, <laughs> it, it is, it's something that people would do. And, and do you remember, uh, you talking earlier about you helped me out at the Josiah Bartlett auction. Oh, yes. And in his apothecary case, he had lead pills. Yes. And, and yes. Uh, they thought that was a thing you take, is lead pills. And this is, you know, an early 18th century um, idea. I don't know when that changed, but oh boy, that's really something. Well, but that's that's the same as bloodletting and uh, yeah, heroin and they cocaine. did a lot of that. Yes, yeah, the bloodletting was uh, in his uh, journal almost every day. There'd be bloodletting. That's um, correct. As a doctor, he was a doctor. Yes. So let me let me ask you this: What are um, what are you have told me this uh, story a, a, a long time ago? Uh, when I say a long time, a couple of years ago, maybe that. Uh, there are people out there trying to get young people into, say, collecting stamps by going to these stamp collections that are worthless, basically, and sharing them with one young people. Can you talk about that? Well, it's, it's actually the same with coins. And as I mentioned earlier, yes, yeah. pretty much where, where you're looking at trying to come up with, with history, uh, with stamps, uh, you have stamps that, that maybe of you know, pounds of stamps that, that might not be worth very much money and and sorting through where are the different countries? What are the countries that may not exist anymore? Uh, trying to figure out what the various different uh, British Empire and Commonwealth countries are and where they are. I mean, the, the example that I like to use is uh, FDR was a stamp collector as a kid. And so when we started getting close to World War II, he was meeting, obviously, with people from the Pentagon and and the military. And they would say, well, we can get this warship from point A to point B, being this country to that island. And and Roosevelt will say, that's pretty good. How are you going to do it in a day when they're 5,000 miles apart? So strategically for us during World War II, it was great that he had an idea about geography. And, And that's one of the things that can be done as a learning tool where kids aren't even learning or, or don't even know that they're learning about this kind of stuff. And it's the same with coins. Who were the pictures of, uh, uh, what did the presidents do? Who, 
and when did they serve and when did they live and what was going on in the country when they were in office. And it's pretty easy, you know, with Lincoln on a penny and Jefferson on the nickel and Roosevelt on the dime, Washington on the quarter, uh, Kennedy on the half dollar. So, and now we've got uh, dollars where you have Native Americans and you have presidential dollars. So there's a lot of things that could be done very inexpensively where you can find things. The state quarters, the national parks quarters, the territorial quarters uh, that started in 19, uh, uh, in, in the 1990s. Well, they're, they're just wonderful tools to learn things because you'll find this stuff in circulation. That, that's, that's really great. And, uh, you know, I never really thought of, of that, of, you know, you know what, uh, what makes things so interesting to me and always has is the history and the connections that um, they make. And, and you just laid that out perfectly well. I mean, um, you know, you get to see, uh, it's kind of like a window into what's, what's going on. And, uh, well, it is. I mean, the first state quarters came out in 1999, and the first one was from Delaware, and the second was from Pennsylvania, because they were issuing them in order from what what state or what colony actually at that time ratified the Constitution. Ah, here's so, here's a good example. <clears throat> oh, that's, me. that's yes. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, here's a good example of a, a Native American on. Uh, I don't believe I've ever seen this particular bill. Before. Well, and that is that is one of the two most popular large size pieces of paper money. That's an 1899 five dollar silver certificate, and and Chief Ani Papa is the image that's on that silver certificate, and it's just paper money collectors just love that, and people that like Americana love that. Uh, when I say a large size bill, the kind of money we keep on our wallets today are small notes. Uh, mm-hmm. What was happening during the economic expansion of the 20s is we were printing so many of those bills, which have the nickname horse blanket. Doesn't matter what the denomination. They were <laughs> those large size. Wow. Uh, and they fit in, in, in large, large uh, wallets. And, and it was costing too much money for the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to print them. So they came up with the smaller size design, and they started working on that in 1927 and 1928. So what did the government do? In 1929, they introduced the small size note, and we go into a depression, and we don't need any money at all because nobody's working. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but slowly, and there was, there was big pushback by the, by the people in the country because they really liked the old old big notes but eventually the old notes like that got taken out of circulation and the new notes as we know them today uh, came into being now um let me ask you this and i know we're you know we're we'll go a little bit longer if it's okay with you that's fine um, what is the largest um note that was you know uh, was it I, I know there's thousand dollar bills but did were there bills that were printed in the u.s that were actually larger than a thousand dollar bill yeah, believe it or not, the largest denomination bill was a hundred thousand dollars. A hundred thousand? Yeah, but those didn't circulate. Uh, <laughs> I can see why. <laughs> You're not going to go to Walmart with a yeah. No, those wow. those were those were used for bank to bank transfers. Yeah. Um, well, what about the ones that were circulated? What's the largest bill that was circulated? Generally, the largest bill were bills were the five hundred and the thousand dollar bills, and uh, yeah. Richard Nixon, when he was president, uh, stopped them from from being printed and being used in circulation uh, because of basically money laundering that started back in the sixties. Wow, I want to talk about this, and and uh, I also want to tell people in the audio podcast that I'm going to link um, Stevens. Uh, website on this podcast you can and i'll put some pictures in too but right now we're uh planted on this amazing condition on this 1915 um indian head uh buffalo nickel let's talk about that was that was that a uh actually it's a a 1913 even though if you're looking at it kind of at a a glance it does look like 1915 it turns out that came out of that time capsule collection from the 1913 proof set 
and oh, you'll yeah. you'll if if you're looking at this visually, you will see the plastic prongs. We yeah. had all of those proof sets professionally graded by one of the major grading services, and and because we want, needed to protect them, we didn't want to take a chance of people putting getting fingerprints on them or or damaging them or dropping yeah. them on the floor. So they're in those holders. It turns out that that is the finest known. 1913 Liberty nickel, and we ended up getting close to $100,000 for that one. You mean Buffalo nickel? I'm sorry. Yes, I apologize. Yeah. Buffalo uh, nickel. Yes. Yeah. So let me let me ask you this. I think this is a very good uh, point to bring up. Um, you, you may say it's not, but I think it is. Uh, I noticed when you uh, let's see when we brought up this coin. Uh, I just had it up there before. The condition of the coin. You showed where there was a shadow where the quarter was on top of it. And you yeah. left it alone. How important is it to leave something alone when it's the, rare? It's just like, uh, I guess, the, the, the analysis or analogy that I would use is you if you saw a piece of dust on the Mona Lisa in the Louvre, you wouldn't walk up with a bottle of Windex and a rag and try to take it off. <laughs> it's just, it's just yeah. you want to keep things original. And with coins, it's paramount. That toning that you saw was from 125 years of sitting in an envelope, not going anywhere. And because we didn't have acid-free archival uh, paper back then, and who cared? It was worth a, it cost like a dollar and five cents in those days to buy that coin from the mint in 1895. Uh, so the acid that was in the paper cause the toning from direct contact yeah and, and wow uh, so yeah i mean i i remember uh when i first started collecting coins and and we're talking about i had a paper route very young like nine years old and um there was uh you know you always wonder what how people get into collecting and yes. in this particular case um there was this elderly couple with no children and they used to pay it was 50 cents a week for the newspaper the portsmouth herald newspaper I think if that's what it was, something like that. But they always paid me in their coin collection and old coins. Very and nice. And that started me collecting. I mean, I just fell in love with it. You know, every <laughs> single week I look forward to going to their house. Um, yeah. But and, I, I also would like to add, Martin, that under no circumstances for any reason whatsoever should you attempt to clean a coin. Yeah. If you can't read a date, you don't take a pencil eraser. Yeah. You don't take silver or copper polish. I yes. have seen 20,000. I, I was doing it at first. I was going to mention that. Okay. And, until I learned when I was like nine or 10 years old, I went to the, the kitchen cabinet and found some, you know, silver polish and started cleaning the coins before I knew any better. I remember the way it smelled already. I can still remember <laughs> <laughs> um, but getting it, you know, taking that tarnish off or whatever. And it's not a good idea. It's every time you clean something, you're removing something. Yes. Uh, I have seen, I've seen $25,000 coins told, told, turned into two and $3,000 coins. Wow. Because people Just, have met, people have messed with them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, say someone has, um, you, you know, like you get the 99 calls and one good call when it mm -hmm. comes to stamps. Um, is there anything in particular you could tell someone if they're just curious, hey, maybe dad's stamps are worth something? Or uh, I think it's much easier with coins for someone to figure out if they have something of value. Um, maybe I'm wrong with that. But um, no, you're not. You're not. The, the trick with stamps is how have they been preserved over the years? If they're in albums, what kind of album? Are they uh, albums that were designed for children and collectors that did not have a whole lot of money don't have spaces for high value stamps because it would be very frustrating for a kid. They couldn't they couldn't partially fill up a page because the page didn't have any stamps that they could afford or that they could find. And so the title of the album, what it looks like when it was printed, all would tell me and I do this kind of forensic stuff over the phone with people that say, well, I've got this big collection and I, before I want to go to the house, I want to know what they have. So they'll tell me, well, the album is red or the album is green. What is, and I will ask, what does it say on front of it? What does it say on the side of it? When you open it up, what does the front 
page say what's the date on it you know who who printed it who's the manufacturer and if you've been around this long enough you you know what the albums that should have good stamps in and don't have good stamps then what you do is is you go to the pages where where there should be valuable stamps and if the if, if a page is full and i remember one time you sent me somewhere that had a very nice canadian collection and i opened it up and all the good stamps were in there that was pretty neat because you don't see that a lot mm -hmm. And uh, but if you have a bunch of stamps that have been ripped off the corner of an envelope and thrown into an old cigar box or a shoe box, you yeah. don't have very much there. That's yeah. probably probably fire starter material <laughs> or the uh, oh, the wallpaper again. Uh, let's uh, yeah, let <clears throat> just one. The last thing I'd like to talk to you about is, yep. OK, so now you're in a house and people want to sell their things. Can you walk the listening audience how? You go through the whole process and it goes to auction and what you do to put it in your auction. And uh, because I think it's a lot of people just don't know how that process works. I have to explain it to people. I'm sure you do, too. All the time. But the first thing that I will do is I will make sure that any coins that need to be protective go in the proper holders before they get moved anywhere. Because most of the time I'll go in to a house and they will have laid out the collection on the dining room table. And and you you want to make sure that the $500 and $1,000 coin aren't sitting around and going back into a box where they can get jiggled around and scratched or, or anything like that. Hmm. And it really is a matter of just evaluating what's there, figuring out uh, what the what the good things are and pointing the, them out to the people and telling them what the wholesale value of things are and, and finding out what their intentions are, whether they want to sell it right away uh, for a cash offer, whether they want to go to auction where uh, you will have a combination of collectors, investors, and dealers that will be significantly competing for their material. And in most cases, uh, after the commission is taken away from, from whatever they have uh, gotten, let's say something sells for $100 and, and the commission is 10%, so they would get $90. Uh, will that $90 be actually more than somebody giving them a cash offer? Uh, is it worth hiring somebody to sell it for them as opposed to taking the money and run? Now, with precious metals, for example, gold and silver, if the coins are very common and they're tied to the gold and silver price, and somebody's not doing an auction for a month or two, you may be worried that that those prices are going to go down. So you might want to lock in today's price. I mean, two months ago, gold, for example, was over $2,000 an ounce. This morning when I looked, it was about $1,850 an ounce. So you've had a, a little bit of a drop, but but that stuff trades based upon what's happening on the international monetary markets and economies and, and you know, it ran up with COVID. It, it's backed off with the stronger dollar. Uh, tomorrow, it could go up $100 because something, some shoe drops that we're not aware of. Right. And if it goes to auction, you go you go through the, the very um, rigorous cataloging of it. And as we saw earlier, photography, really nice photography of, of your pieces that, uh, that come up. And then it's offered online. And uh, people from anywhere in the world can bid basically on an online platform. That's correct. And, and it depends upon what each auction company likes to do. Uh, most of your major auction houses will be a combination of online and in person where you actually have people yeah. bidding from the floor yeah. and, and people take bids that way. Yeah. And uh, one last thing, uh, you mentioned COVID. Um, I hate even bringing that topic up, but I understand. Um, but that, uh, to me, what I've witnessed at other auctions is it seems like things are doing pretty darn well. What's the coin and stamp auction business like? Well, we had uh, three auctions scheduled in mid-April, and I can tell you that on Monday morning, March sixteenth, we were scheduled to go to the printer. And this, there was something that was a little funky over that weekend going into St. Patty's Day. And on Monday morning, I just said, I said, we're going to hold off one more day. And of course, by Tuesday, the 17th, pardon the expression, it had hit the fan and, yeah. and we were shut down. So we would have had a catalog that would have been useless. Wow. And we had to wait 
because we operate in New Hampshire, we had to wait until we have permission from the governor to uh, have indoor gatherings. Uh, and he, when he opened up New Hampshire, he opened it up so that you could have up to 50% maximum capacity. So if a, a, a function room held 200 people, you could put 100 people in. Well, of course, the hotel that we use also wanted to make sure there was proper social distancing. So it took us a week once we were allowed to reopen to negotiate with them, coming up with different floor plans, where we would have the merchandise displayed, how we would put our customers in the room, and what would happen if too many customers showed up. Uh, so we literally uh, put our auctions together for July, late in July, and we did no marketing whatsoever other than mailing catalogs to our current customer base and posting our auctions online. And we pretty much close to fill the room for both our stamp and two coin auctions. And the net result of that auction was it came in at 50% above our estimates because what had happened wow. was that's amazing. Happened, it, it was to us. We didn't expect that. But what literally happened was when you had the shutdown, there were no longer any weekly or monthly coin or stamp shows, both locally, nationally, or regionally. And so all of a sudden, dealers are selling product to their client base, but they're not having a simple and easy way of replenishing their stock and inventory. So we had a state material that was fresh to the market, and they literally were beating themselves up to, to buy the stuff. And then we did an auction three weeks ago, and it was the same, massively successful, came in at 50% over what we had estimated in catalog because people really wanted to do that. Now, will that happen uh, next time? I don't know. We have not scheduled any dates for 2021, and it's the first time in 20 years we've not scheduled a year in advance because we don't do our auctions in the winter. Uh, we start in April, and I just want to wait another couple of months to see what we can and can't do. That's uh, I think that's a wise decision. Decision, and uh, like Wes Cowan said on uh, this show in particular, um, when the when the pandemic started, he said collectors have to collect. Yes, you know, it's it's a drive. So anyway, Steve, um, as it's your, I consider you a good friend, and as always, it was uh, really interesting talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for asking me, Martin. I had a wonderful time, and I hope I've helped a few people out in their decision making down the road. I hope so, too. And that's centennialauctions.com. It's pretty simple. Yes. Yeah. And again, uh, everyone, uh, I will have uh, information up in the show notes. Thanks again, Steve. Thank you. All right. All right, everyone. So that's it for the show today. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>